Well, our text this afternoon, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12. As always then, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open that and to the text so you can follow along as we go. Uh, regarding the fact that this is my final sermon at Christ the King, I only want to say how grateful I am for the willingness you've shown week in and week out for over six years. Well, a small handful of you here in the room for over six years, but some of you for some length of those six years. The willingness you've shown to learn and grow and hear from the Lord in his word. Thank you for working hard as listeners. Thank you for asking good questions when something I said didn't make sense or seemed off to you. Thank you for humbling yourselves before the text. And thank you for allowing me to preach lengthy series with lengthy sermons through lengthy books of the Bible. Because most pastors can't get away with that because their congregation simply won't have it. <laughs> and it's really not the Anglican way of doing things either, so I'm grateful to have had that opportunity to do so at Christ the King. I'm also grateful that Glenn intends to continue in the Matthew series after the Christmas season, and let me just say that you're in very good hands, brothers and sisters. In fact, I'll say I personally couldn't be happier than to have Glenn be the one picking up where I'm leaving off, not just in the Matthew series, but also in so many other areas of the life of the church for which the rector is responsible. So thank you, Glenn, for your willingness to serve in this way. Now, last week, for the second Sunday in Advent, we broke off from our Matthew series to consider the gospel of God in Isaiah 51 and 52. This week, we are considering the offering of God in Isaiah 52 and 53. Next week, Glenn will take you more towards the Christmas season as you consider Luke chapter 1 leading up to the birth narrative of Jesus. But this week and next, actually still, we are in Advent, which means we're still waiting for the Savior, the Messiah, to come. To come as a baby in the manger the first time and to come as the Son of Man riding the clouds of heaven the second which means, of course, that both in the first century and today, the key question is, why two comings? Why would the Messiah need to come twice? And the answer, of course, though it shocked even Jesus' own disciples at the time, is that the Messiah needed to come twice, because the first time he came as the offering of God. The first time, he came to die. 
So in the middle of this Advent season, and as the final focus of my preaching at Christ the King, I want to take time to reflect on the offering of God. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 to chapter 53, verse 12, is a famous poem or a song of the scriptures about the servant of the Lord. That's how the text begins in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now, there are times in Isaiah when the servant of the Lord is the people of Israel. For example, in Isaiah 41, verse 8, we read, But you, Israel, my servant, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth, you are my servant. Sometimes the servant is Israel. There are other times in Isaiah where the servant is the prophet himself. For example, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, the Lord is speaking to the prophet, and we read, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Sometimes in Isaiah, the servant is the prophet. But then there are times in Isaiah when the servant isn't the people of Israel and isn't the prophet but is another person, a mysterious and at times powerful future individual spoken of by the prophet as Isaiah declares the words of the Lord. For example, it is this future individual who's in view in Isaiah chapter 42 when we read, Behold my servant. Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. In fact, four times in Isaiah, we find what are referred to as the servant songs. The poems about this future mysterious individual. And our text this afternoon is the last one of those four in the book of Isaiah. It is that same powerful future servant who's in view here in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, only now the focus is on something else. The focus here is on the suffering servant. He who is despised and rejected and acquainted with grief. And we know that this suffering servant can't be the prophet and can't be the people because in Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant is pictured as substituting himself for the prophet and the people. Chapter 53, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Our here means both me, Isaiah, and it means the people of Israel who will believe on this servant of the Lord. 
the servant is the substitute for Isaiah and the people. He's their servant and he's ours as well. And of course, the New Testament makes clear that the servant in view in these chapters is Jesus, the Messiah. Peter quotes Isaiah 53, verse 5, with his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53, verse 5. Peter applies that to Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, when he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, Peter writes. In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah chapter 53 when Philip joined him in his chariot. If you remember that story, the Holy Spirit told Philip to go to this particular chariot. And the man was reading Isaiah 53 verses 7 and 8 about the lamb that is led to the slaughter and the sheep that before its shearers is silent. And he said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? And then Luke tells us in Acts 8, verse 35, that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, that is with Isaiah 52 and 53, this servant song, he told him the good news about Jesus. So I want us to briefly consider this prophecy from Isaiah, but with the understanding from the very outset that it is a revelation of Christ. We won't be exhaustive or cover every detail by any stretch, but rather we'll try to take in the big picture of things as we consider the text before us now under these three headings. Number one, the servant's significance. Number two, the servant's suffering. And number three, the servant's success. So the servant's significance, the servant's suffering, and the servant's success. Only a bit unusually, we're not starting at the beginning of the poem. Rather, we're starting in the middle. We begin on Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, as we consider the servant's significance. It is literally the middle of the poem, and it is, I think, the heart of what Isaiah says about the servant. So listen to these verses again, beginning in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The significance of the servant. The fact is, we are all every one of us, a people who turn our own ways. The people of Israel were then too, 
I like how the New Living Translation puts it. That translation says, we have left God's paths to follow our own. The language and the imagery here refer to wandering in the wilderness of sin. It's not the only place in the scriptures this idea occurs with this language. Psalm 119, verse 176, the concluding verse of that great psalm, is similar. It says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. The psalmist says, seek your servant for I do not forget your commandments. The simile here, like sheep, that we have in verse 6, pictures the helplessness of people without a shepherd. Actually, you'll notice that both the people and the servant are compared to sheep in verses 6 and 7 of the text, but the point of the comparisons are vastly different. People are like sheep because they wander off so easily and stray into sin. And the Bible stresses many times the peril of sheep without a shepherd. In contrast, the servant is the lamb that suffers as a substitute for our sins. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist says in John 1 verse 29, that each individual turns his or her own way means that we all find ourselves in opposition to God's ways in our lives at some point. But the Lord laid on the servant the iniquity, the sins of us all, verse 6 says. Note that it is the Lord who lays on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. By divine decree, the servant was the provision of God. It's God himself who superintended the priestly task of transferring the guilt of the guilty to the head of the servant, giving notice that this was an acceptable satisfaction for sin. Simply put, the significance of the servant is that he is our sin-bearer. He was pierced, crushed, beaten, and whipped so that we could be healed and made whole. Jesus Christ really was a man of sorrows, but they weren't his own. He didn't deserve them. They were our sorrows. And in a way we don't understand, Jesus substituted himself for us at the cross. All the sins of the world were placed on him in those awful hours in which Jesus became sin for us. And the key is that God did what we would have no right to do. That God shifted the blame to Jesus as Jesus died for guilty people. God pointed the finger at his son. God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's what's called imputation. From the Latin verb imputare, meaning to charge to someone's account. Guilt must be paid for. God can't just turn a blind eye to sin and evil, but God could make it 
so that our debt is charged to a substitute. Paul says this just as clearly as Isaiah does in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul says, for our sake, he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the imputation part. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the love of God. The blood of Jesus Christ flows out to sinners of all kinds, taking from them their guilt, their shame, their loss, their tears and despair, and giving them a whole new life to be lived. The suffering servant says to us now, I don't want you to bear your burden one moment longer. Let the chastisement let my chastisement give you peace. Let my stripes heal you. Jesus didn't suffer because God inflicted deserved punishment on him. It's our suffering he bore. It's for our transgression and our iniquities that he suffered, verse 5 says. Yours and mine, he was our sin bearer. That's the significance of the servant. Secondly, then we consider the servant's suffering. And for that, though there's already been some of that in the text we just read, now we move to the verses that come both before and after that center of the poem in verses 4 to 6. Now we're looking at verses 1 to 3 and then verses 7 to 9 of Isaiah 53. So just moving out from the center. Verses 1 to 3 first. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verses 1 to 3 emphasize the lowliness of the servant and our superficial estimation of him. He was totally misunderstood and unappreciated because of his apparent insignificance. His appearance was nothing beautiful or majestic. Certainly nothing that would have attracted us to him. As one commentator puts it, they wanted a king, but they got a carpenter. He was, in fact, despised and rejected and acquainted with sorrows and deep grief, so much so that those around him turned their backs and looked the other way. Jesus Christ was despised and no one cared. Actually, it says, we esteemed him not at the end of verse 3. That's an accounting word, a reckoning up of value. As one author puts it, thus the contemporaries of the servant so totally despised and devalued him that they ranked him as zero. They reckoned him as nothing. Nothing. He whose significance was so great. Have you ever thought about the fact that the people closest to Jesus 
in his earthly life couldn't ultimately understand him. They couldn't see the glory in the cross, not when it was happening. Still today, the cross remains a stumbling block or foolishness to many, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. It still takes faith to see anything different. And it wasn't just the cross, of course. Jesus, the servant, lacked significant, obvious material or physical attributes that would mark him as any special person, much less the Messiah. He was like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. In that context, plants could only struggle to grow. The servant produces no, in other words, the point is this plant produces no form or majesty or colorful flowers that we should look at it. No beauty that we should desire him. He lived in rejection. I know Jesus had lots of people at times who were interested in what he was doing, but we shouldn't overestimate the significance of the crowds that followed him around sometimes. They didn't stick with him. His miracles didn't, on the whole, make the impact they should have. His own family misjudged him. It's not as if Jesus walked around with some kind of glow about him as he went from place to place. I mean, the woman at the well had no idea whom she was talking to. Even John the Baptist became uncertain about him. Jesus just wasn't special in ways that count with us. And in the end, he in fact became hideous in his sufferings so that even those closest to him hid their faces. He lived in rejection, and he died in innocence, and for that we look now at verses 7 to 9. Listen to them, 7 to 9. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Although his suffering was caused by others, the servant remained silent as he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He suffered silently in submission to the will of the Lord. And we have to be careful here regarding the point of the comparison. Although animals go as uncomprehendingly to slaughter as they do to shearing, the servant went to his horrible death in full awareness. Jesus wasn't caught in a web of events beyond his own control. He willingly laid down his life. He was silent like a lamb being led to slaughter because he chose to be that way. He wasn't overpowered. He chose not to fight back. Although his suffering was manifestly unjust, he accepted it without protest. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, verse 8 says in the ESV. 
the most likely understanding of the language there is that it suggests violent action taken against the servant within a legal context. There was a semblance of a proper trial, but it was in fact a show trial. The whole thing was a sham. The first in a series of maltreatments, he was cut off out of the land of the living, unjustly killed, in other words, and then buried like a criminal, put in a rich man's grave. In both his actions and his words, Jesus dies in entire innocence. Though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Isaiah says he was treated like those known for wicked behavior. Such is the suffering of the servant. Only that's not the end of the story. Because if the story of Jesus had ended there in the grave, then, of course, his heroism may have been admirable, but would have been futile. It's the empty tomb that proves there was more to his death than anyone realized. Which brings us to the final point, and that's the servant's success. This is what begins and ends our passage, as now we move outwards in the text one more time, looking here at chapter 52, verses 13 to 15, and then at the end, chapter 53, verses 10 to 12. So first, verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they had not heard they understand. Right at the start we see that all Jesus did all the servant does in his mission into this world, his life of obedience, his teaching, his suffering, his death, all of it succeeds. Jesus indeed acted wisely, as verse 13 says, and it worked. He would rise from the dead and be lifted up to the right hand of the Father to reign on high with all power and authority. Yes, the servant shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted worshipped, in fact. The words that are used here of the servant are words that are used only of God himself elsewhere in Isaiah. And so we see that this great poem begins with what is really the end of the whole story. Having borne the sin of many, what is Jesus doing? <laughs> According to the very end of Chapter 53, verse 12, well, he's making intercession for the transgressors. As our great high priest, seated now at the right hand of the majesty on high, the victor who receives his portion from the Father. And I think that it's, this, it's the very opening note 
of the song because it wasn't what many expected. They had been astonished. Verse 14 begins, why? Well, because of his sufferings. The disfigurement of this servant is utterly shocking. His appearance was so mired beyond human semblance. Jesus becomes repulsive in his suffering. No one is acting, no, no one is asking then, is he the servant of the Lord as he's being beaten and whipped and crucified? Yet Isaiah claims that as many were astonished due to his suffering, so shall this suffering servant purify us. In other words, Isaiah connects Jesus' horrific sufferings to his effectiveness in purifying us. So shall he sprinkle many nations, verse 15 says, meaning that to those in every nation on earth comes cleansing, forgiveness, purification. Jesus Christ is both our priest and our sacrifice, as our study of Hebrews has taught us. He is at work to bring many nations to himself through his cleansing blood. Hebrews 10 verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And when in the end, the full reality of this servant's work is realized, what is the response? Well, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, Isaiah says in verse 15. They will be silent in reverential awe and honor before him, the servant who, according to Isaiah 42, not only sprinkles many nations, but also brings forth justice to them. He who has been seated, despite all expectations, as Ephesians 1 verse 21 says, seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. which leaves for our consideration only the final triumphant picture of Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12, as our time expires. Listen as I read these final verses. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here at the end of the final servant song, Isaiah describes the servant's victory. There's a return now to the exaltation that began the whole thing in chapter 52, verse 13. 
and take a moment to appreciate just how stunning it is. Because clearly the servant's vindication and victory, as Isaiah describes it, comes after his death. The middle of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, that is, when he offers himself, his own soul, as a sacrifice, then he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul in death, he shall see and be satisfied. I don't know how many times I've read this passage and have never really focused on this aspect of it. That Isaiah's prophecy in this chapter isn't just about the cross. It's about the resurrection. It's about the servant's life beyond death. When he'll see what his anguish accomplished, when he will be satisfied, as he makes it possible for many to be accounted righteous. And here you could simply insert the entire Hebrews sermon series, right? That's what it's all about. Our exalted high priest making possible our lives of faith in anticipation of arrival at the heavenly city where we will dwell with him forever. It all brings Jesus, the servant, great satisfaction. And it was all because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It wasn't something that happened by chance or accident. The death of Jesus Christ was the divine strategy. And Jesus embraced it. Hebrews 10 puts the words of the psalmist on the lips of the pre-incarnate Christ. I have come to do your will, O God. At the cross, Jesus was doing the will of the Lord, knowing that his death would produce life. He shall see his offspring, Isaiah says. Well, who are they? Well, they are all of us. Those who through all of history have by faith embraced the salvation promised and brought about through the servant Looking out on what he accomplished by his passion, Christ is satisfied. The one who descended to unimaginable depths is now enjoying the spoils of complete victory. The servant who was crushed under the will of the Lord lives on as the one who carries out that will. Which means he's actively saving guilty men and women today treating transgressors as his friends. He stands before the Father making intercession for the very ones who drove him to death, and he knows it was all worth it. The only question is the one posed by Isaiah himself in chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Do you know the servant of whom Isaiah speaks? Are you among those who will be accounted righteous by faith? If so, then rejoice this Advent 
in the promise of eternal life that is yours in Christ, the servant who has come once and will come again. If not, then ponder these words of Isaiah in your heart this Advent and Christmas time. Give consideration to the offering of God. And ask the Lord to illumine your heart with the love and knowledge of him who stands ready to welcome you home as one of his own. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.